Good morning and welcome. My name is Reverend Mari Caballero, Marisol, and I am the assistant minister here at First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. At this point in time, I would like to invite you all to join me in the words by which we light our chalice. You'll find them printed in your order of service. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Our call to worship this morning comes from Eileen Carpellis. Out of our separate lives we come to walk this path together for an hour or a day, for a week or a month, or a series of months and years. For this space of time we travel together, making much or little or nothing at all of the fact that another walks beside us. We can keep our eyes cast down, protecting ourselves from the pain we risk whenever we allow another human being to touch us, living safe little lives inside our sterile wrappings. Or we can reach out, risking a little or a lot or every coin we have, because we believe that loving and being loved is the only game in town. The choice is ours. Those who risk much lose much, but they are also the only ones who ever win. We come together each week from so many varied experiences, backgrounds, theologies, and we do the work of a church, and it's hard to explain. And this today's sermon is going to talk about a little bit about why and how it's hard to explain. But one way we make it easier for ourselves to explain to others who we are and what we're doing here together, this motley crew of us, we use our mission statement. We say it together each week as a reminder, and we wrote it on the wall. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Today's reading is by uh, Sophia Lyon Fawes. It matters what we believe. Some beliefs are like walled gardens. They encourage exclusiveness and the feeling of being especially privileged. Other beliefs are expansive and lead the way into wider and deeper sympathies. Some beliefs are like shadows, clouding children's days with fears and unknown calamities. Other beliefs are like sunshine, blessing children with the warmth of happiness. Some beliefs are divisive separating the saved from the unsaved, friends from enemies. Other beliefs are bonds in a world community where sincere differences beautify the pattern. Some beliefs are like blinders, shutting off the power to choose one's own direction. Other beliefs are like gateways, opening wide vistas for exploration. Some beliefs weaken a person's selfhood. They blight the growth of resourcefulness. Other beliefs nurture self-confidence and enrich the feeling of personal worth. 
Some beliefs are rigid, like the body of death, impotent in a changing world. Other beliefs are pliable, like the young sapling, ever growing with the upward thrust of life. And now I'd like to invite you all into the spirit of prayer and meditation with me. These words are by a fellow who I had the privilege to do some work with in Boston this past December, Wayne, Reverend Wayne Arneson. O oh God, whom we know as love, we gather here this morning as seekers and finders, creators and destroyers, givers and receivers of love. From the day of our birth, we have asked for love, and yet, as we grow and change in time, we realize how little we really know about how love is given and how to grow within its nurture. Help us to recognize the love that surrounds us and in which we have our being. Help us to understand how we can be perfect channels for that love. Help us to see ourselves as the loving people we are and can be. In silence now, we bring to our mind's eye the people who have loved us and continue to love us. People who are not here with us today, but whose love we carry with us. People who are there every day and whose love we sometimes take for granted People who might be within our circle of love, but we could, but could we but extend it a little further? In silence now, we hold these people in our hearts. In returning from silence, we ask that our hearts may be open to all whose names and faces have crossed our minds. We ask that old wounds may be healed that constant joys may be celebrated, and that the love we share with the people in our lives may be our abiding teacher. Amen. Now, during the musical meditation, I invite you to light a candle for those whose faces and names came into your hearts, those who you might be celebrating their joys as well as your own, and those who you are holding up a special prayer for, those whose concern you have on your mind and weighing your hearts, so that the flames of the candles might lift those prayers up high and become our very breath, and that we can collectively hold them together so that you need not celebrate or mourn alone. May it be so. Amen. Yesterday, I learned the happy fact that a group of pugs is called a grumble. My soon-to-be in-laws are a pug-owning family, so there is a constant grumble underfoot in the kitchen during every major holiday. Being a lover of words and their multiple meanings, I searched out other nouns to describe congregations of animals. Among the best were a flamboyance of flamingos, a murder of crows, 
A memory of elephants, a business of ferrets, an unkindness of ravens, a prickle of hedgehogs, and a piteousness of doves. (laughs) As cute and hilarious as these are, they all make some sense, don't they? Each collective noun describes either the behavior or an attribute of the animal. I remembered that a colleague's wife had once named our monthly meeting of a group of ministers as a cackle of ministers. That's pretty accurate. It delights me to think that each of these spot-on collective nouns originated in someone's imagination, and the terms just stuck. Among new terms in the Oxford Dictionary are cyber espionage, selfie, and mochaccino. Last week, I was called out by our high school youth as trying to coin the term, the term sing-along ability when giving them guidance on hymn selection for their upcoming youth-led service. As many of us do, I love playing with words and giving them new meaning. I'm a fool for a good pun. In the past couple of weeks, I've been under the weather, and when the doctor told me it was caused by a nasty cold virus, my fiancé declared that I had gone viral. I can assure you I have stretched the mileage considerably on that joke, as proved by that response. (laughs) But as much as I enjoy entertaining nuanced definitions of familiar words, I can say with some confidence that I'm in good company in, in admitting that I've had some squeamishness around words such as God, faith, prayer, salvation, and sin. Many in this room, no doubt, have come to Unitarian Universalism from some other faith traditions who use these terms in very specific ways. And many of the ways that they are commonly used have left still bleeding, gaping wounds, emotional wounds on many. That pain, those memories, and the suspicion of those who wield such words as weapons are real. Although in her attempt to to find a happy medium between head and heart, my mother did cart us around occasionally between the Catholic Church and every other flavor of Protestant Christianity available in Odessa, Texas. I had been exposed to Unitarian Universalism early on, early enough that my family's church hopping did not rock my UU foundation as a kid. For the most part, I was sure that we would always return to our tiny UU fellowship where we didn't have to turn our brains off. At least that's how I saw it as an inquisitive child. I would have made a terrible handmaiden too. At our little fellowship, we talked a ton about the beliefs of others' religions. We learned that as UUs, we drew value from wisdom value and wisdom from each. We even had a beautiful mural on the wall with portraits of prophetic men and women throughout the ages, including Jesus and Mahatma Gandhi, though we didn't really talk much about the value of Jesus' teachings, as I recall. 
In West Texas, I experienced some of the worst expressions of Christianity. A PE coach telling me that I worshipped the devil in fifth grade. A seventh grade classmate began her six-year attempt at, um, at trying to persuade me to attend her church with her because she genuinely worried about my soul making it to heaven. And at age 17, the rage-filled screams of a disgusted call center coworker when she found out that I'm gay and I'd been sitting next to her for weeks. I heard stories from others over the years that make my own seem like a walk in the park. I, like the many who find their way to UUism, wanted to distinguish myself as much as possible from the Christianity that I had known, that kind of condemning Christianity that I found myself often explaining my faith by talking about all that Unitarian Universalists don't believe in and lacking a clear vocabulary like the girl in the story to explain what it is that we actually do believe in. This is a common predicament. I could speak to shared ideals and point to our seven sources and our seven principles rather and our sources but I failed miserably at sharing descriptions of how this faith moves my spirit. And it does. Blogger John Halstead touches on this in an article recently published this, just this past week entitled, The Baby is the Bathwater, Why I Haven't Joined the Unitarian Church. William Ellery Channing, he says, the father of Unitarianism in America, wrote in 1820 that Unitarians had <clears throat> sacrificed, quote, imagination and poetic enthusiasm to the rational and critical power. Emerson bemoaned the lack of enthusiasm in Unitarianism. Theodore Parker decried the absence of a, quote, deep internal feeling of piety most powerfully preaching to the understanding, the conscience, the will, the cry was ever, duty, duty, work, work. They failed to address with equal power the soul and did not also shout, joy, joy, delight, delight, Theodore Parker said. Orestes Brownson, a transcendentalist who converted to Catholicism, wrote of Unitarians that they had, quote, pronounced the everlasting no, were they never to be able to pronounce the everlasting yes? And the Unitarian minister, John Trevor, a generation later, regretted the absence of, quote, enthusiasm and personal abandonment, end quote, in Unitarianism. He said, the, it is the last word of the old gospel, sifted small through the riddle of the intellect, not the first word of the new gospel, bursting up irresistibly from the spirit. These were men who had great respect for Unitarianism and its ambition to advance social justice, but who found it lacking in something essential, the blogger wrote. In other words, we are great at walking the talk, but we could improve our ability a bit as Unitarian Universalists to talk that walk. We need language adequate enough to express and sustain our experience of our transcendent spiritual, collective, and individual lived experiences. In 2002, 
The then president of our Unitarian Universalist Association of Congregations, Reverend Bill Sinkford, preached a controversial sermon entitled The Language of Reverence, in which he pointed out that our seven principles do not contain one traditionally religious word. Not one, but rather focuses on lifting up our shared ethical ideals. He posed the question, if this language, while beautiful in its aspirations, was sufficient, or if it was up to the spiritual task of nurturing and describing the reality of our religious experience, and whether we need to expand our lexicon. Sinkford says, we believe that our religious theological pluralism is good, certainly distinguishes us from the rest of the from most of the religious world he says but our religious breath breadth can work against our religious depth in an effort to strengthen the depth of the way we speak about this faith we love jean harrison newajar explores this topic in her book fluent in faith a Unitarian Universalist Embrace of Religious Language. It's a very quick read, very good. I recommend it greatly. In it, she acknowledges that in some congregations, worship and community life may be rich with the lexicon of God, prayer, salvation, and sin. In other congregations, although the hymns and anthems may be replete with words like holy, grace, and soul, It is only in the music that this vocabulary is used. And and even at that, we all know that joke, that old joke about Unitarians can't sing together well because we're all looking forward in the hymns and deciding whether we want to sing that word or not. So for many, she says, it seems easier to sing these sentiments than to say them. We allow a broader margin for metaphor and poetry in our singing than in our speaking. And in still other congregations and families, she says, these words may not merely be absent, but shunned. Further on, Harrison Newajar names what I later discovered as I entered St. Edwards University's Religious Studies Department, and then... Again, when I left Texas to attend a liberal Christian seminary in New York City, there is value in common vocabulary. Yes, even in traditionally Judeo-Christian words. If we, as the heady you use, we can be, relax, and can allow ourselves to relax into our imaginations and consider meanings of such traditional religious words that exist outside of the narrow, narrowest, narrowness, excuse me, of our exposures to fundamentalism. We may avoid our own flip side version of fundamentalism and enjoy a greater openness to the spirit. She says that Even as I urge us to use religious language more broadly, I caution that we must hold these words lightly, using them to point to and suggest, not to define. 
These words will serve us best if we allow them to be elastic. Perhaps not meaning precisely to me what they mean to you or to your Jewish neighbor or to your Lutheran in-laws, but pointing in the same direction, capturing the essence of a shared experience, a shared longing for a deeper spiritual life. We need to go bravely into the tangle of words, wrestle with them, find which of the traditional words can become useful to us and and identify which new words are needed. Once as I was leaving a guest preaching gig at a small lay-led congregation here in Central Texas, a woman from the worship committee ran out after me and said that she was glad that I had spoken about prayer as she finds that most of the staunchly secular humanist congregation has very negative attitudes about such things, and she has learned not to bring them up. She asked me for advice on what she could say the next time someone from her church is upset that she adds the language of prayer to the service. I told her to simply introduce the language of prayer to those who dismiss it who dismiss it as nonsense sometimes, as poetic device. God is a word that can have a concrete understanding, as with the image of the guy in the clouds with the white beard who passes judgment on humanity. But God, with a lowercase g, can be metaphorical, can be nuanced, admittedly limited word that does not correspond to any object but may correspond to every living thing or a feeling or a peace that surpasses all understanding. This word can mean a mountain of layers of meaning and depth that when we begin to release our defensiveness around it or a need to be fully, completely understood so that we're not confused with anyone else, or anyone else's meaning of it. And when we release our defensiveness around other such words, other such religious trigger words like it, we may find that we have more in common with members of other faith traditions than we thought. Our box that we put those definitions in may not ring true for those we box in with the terms. Muslims, for example, have 99 words in Arabic for Allah, for God. Among them are attributes such as the just, the awakener, the all-forgiving, the protecting friend. It is said that there are actually 100 names, but that the last is yet unknown. Harrison Nuijar asserts that for you use, God has been put in a box and has lost its rich metaphorical meaning. We need to open that box and let an expansive breeze of ideas and images and associations again infuse this language. We need to reclaim textured meanings, but we have a strong cultural tide to row against, a double tide of fundamentalism and atheism. The fundamental view both theistic and atheistic, are the ones that get the most airtime, 
and thus become accepted as the shared cultural understanding of God. I've heard many a minister recommend saying that when someone says, well, I don't believe in God, that the question that is asked is, well, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. Chances are, I don't either. When boxed in, words like God, prayer, sin, and salvation can seemingly serve to keep us safe from those whose narrow views of what such words can mean um, and, and tuck us away from the memories of such encounters, like the, like the ones I described having in my early years, but is adopting our own brand of fundamentalism, an us-them fervor, helping us to heal and to grow and to fully enjoy our spirituality to the fullest. Also, when we restrict the meaning of language of reverence, as Sinkford coined, are we missing the opportunity to build connections with our neighbors through a common vocabulary? This conversation was all the rage in UU circles in the middle of the last decade, but I don't believe that it has yet become passé, as the character of Unitarian Universalism, by and large, was to distance ourselves as much as possible from the God language throughout most of the 20th century. That just means that we have at least a century's worth of baggage to now sift through. We have embraced the fallacy that a certain group of people who, love to po- who we love to point fingers at have sole ownership of this language of reverence, that such language only speaks to the implausible, that we embrace science over myth. We speak of, as if there exists no awe or mystery or transcendence in the natural world as if we never have cause to connect with one another through clumsy yet movingly authentic attempts at describing the indescribable. I remember a time not so long ago where if you said God in this congregation, when I was in college and a member here, that there would probably be need for smelling salts in the pews. (laughs) Each of these terms alone could, of course, be its own sermon. And indeed, I have spent some time in the past sermons, my past sermons with you all, teasing out a few of these words, prayer and faith among them, salvation. But what I would invite us all to do is to fumble around a bit together, as awkward and uncomfortable as it might be, with using traditionally religious words to speak to our own religious experience. We'll try this together in loving community. We have before us the expanse of our imagination's poetry, as well as the infinite possibilities to which the limitations of spoken language restrict us. I will leave you with the words of the late Reverend Forrest Church. God is is not God's name. God is our name for that which is greater than all and yet present in each. May it be so.
Please join me in the words by which we extinguish our chalice. They can be found again in your orders of service. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Go in peace to stretch out of our linguistic boxes of religious language and dwell in a world of pure imagination. Amen. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.